Hello, good afternoon. If you're with us today, uh, you're here to learn about defending motions for men and temp in New Jersey. Um, the questions we're going to help you answer today is when you get a call from your location, your client, your insured asking you, hey, what is this motion for men and temp? What does it mean? How do we defend it? What does the petitioner have to prove in order to win the motion for med intent? Uh, we're going to really walk you through the basics. I'm joined today on my far right, your far left, that's Joe Jones. That's my partner in our New Jersey workers' compensation practice uh, and associate attorney uh, Michael Tomasino, also in our New Jersey workers' compensation practice. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. I hope everybody who's watching this webinar today uh, has a copy of our handbook. I'm very proud to show the new 2017 edition, which will be coming out in a few weeks. We've just gotten back our first set of proofs back from the publisher, so those will be coming out soon. Uh, the handbook is really one of the biggest things we do all biggest things we do all year in terms of outreach for our clients. Uh, it is an up-to-date handbook. Uh, all the new 2016, 2017. Uh, statistics, all the rates, all the changes in the case law, uh, everything in here. So uh, soon you'll get an email from me saying, hey, do you want a copy of it? And we'll, of course, mail out a hard copy. I also want to direct everyone that we do have a website uh, with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles on it, literally uh, about a thousand articles at this point, all on New Jersey and New York workers' compensation law. We have a newsletter you can join, and of course, we do these monthly webinars. Um, this webinar series, this is the fourth Monday of the month, so we're talking about New Jersey, uh, but we also do a New York webinar series, and that's the third Monday of the month, so you're welcome to join us for that as well. Uh, this is absolutely live. This is not scripted. We are sitting here in our office uh, doing this for you today. Uh, please don't wait to the end uh, to ask us questions. You can type us questions uh, during the pr uh, presentation, and I should see them pop up on this laptop, although they are not yet. So if anybody wants to send you a question or two, uh, we'll see if they're popping up. We have using dual laptops tonight, today for the first time. We'll see if that works. Uh, the handout should have came to you today in your email, but please feel free to ask us questions both during the webinar and after the webinar. Uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. All right. Thanks, Greg. Uh, again, everybody, welcome to our webinar series. Today we're talking about medical and temporary disability benefit uh, motions. Uh, in particular, the New Jersey statutes provide four different types of benefits. There's medical treatment, temporary disability, uh, permanency, and death benefits. We're only going to be discussing the medical treatment and temporary disability today. Uh, we do have another webinar where we will discuss permanency and death benefits as well. So let's talk about uh, the respondent's absolute duty to provide medical treatment in New Jersey. This is provided by statute. In particular, it actually reads, the employer shall furnish to the injured worker such medical, surgical, and other treatment and hospital service as shall be necessary to cure, and I, I highlight that word for a reason, and relieve the worker of the effects of the injury and to restore the functions of the injured member or organ where such restoration is possible. Now, I highlighted cure because we are, we are entitled to provide curative treatment but not palliative treatment. And we'll discuss about that, that a little bit more as we talk about the motions, what these motions are, and how they're resolved. Yeah, and so many times we see petitioners filing motions for treatment that is not curative in right. any way. Right. Really not appropriate for a motion for med intent. Right. So uh, how do these motions come about? It's, it's a form. It's a piece of paper that the petitioner's attorneys file. Uh, you're going to see it. It's called a notice of motion. It will say right on the top, notice of motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. Uh, that should be a red flag to anybody to forward that immediately to their attorney. Uh, you need to let your attorney know because they're, as we're going to go over, certain certain guidelines we have to follow. Uh, these are one of the most important things that we do in workers' compensation. Uh, they do have sort of an emergency nature to them, and so we do need to sort of respond to those right away. 
So the motion itself will involve a notice of motion sort of telling the court uh, exactly what this motion is being filed for. It will often have a paragraph requesting temporary disability. It will also have a paragraph requesting specific medical treatment and will refer often to uh, the medical proofs attached. Uh, the second part of that will be an affidavit that will be signed by the attorney. Uh, sometimes the attorneys even provide an affidavit signed by the petitioner uh, mm -hmm. indicating what he's gone through and the things that uh, uh, the treatment he's requested. Uh, they should also have medical reports attached to them, uh, either the treating medical records from the treating physician or sometimes the petitioners go out and get their own IME, their own opinion, their own hired gun, so to speak, um, as to what they think needs to be done, and that should be included as well. Uh, it's important to note that the burden of proof here is on the petitioner. It is on the petitioner to prove this medical treatment uh, was requested. Uh, it was. We were notified. We were told of this request, and, mm -hmm. and they asked us to provide it. And, in fact, we did not provide it, and that it is curative and it is medically necessary. So it is uh, the, the burdens on them, and a lot of times their motions do not meet that burden. Um, you know, sometimes they don't attach medical proofs. Sometimes uh, they are only asking for temporary disability and not medical treatment, and that's inappropriate, and that's a defective motion, and it's one of the ways we can sort of uh, attack these motions as they come in. Yeah, and so, t so many times when they're asking for just temp, the, ca the case will still get listed for that motion hearing, right. uh, and it'll be listed because there is supporting medical, for example, but really uh, underpayment of temp or failure to pay temp for some past period right. should be dealt with really at the end of the case. Right. So uh, we showed you the form. Now, let me talk about the, the guidelines involved here. There's really two different types of MedTemp motions. The most common one you'll see is just the standard MedTemp motion. Uh, we will also talk in a few minutes about the emergent motions. Those are kind of rare and, and sort of special circumstances. So regarding the standard motion, the motion gets filed. You have 20, we have 21 days to answer that motion, okay, from the filing date. Now, this is important, again, and, and what I mentioned before about the red flag, uh, if you get a copy of these motions, you need to tell counsel right away because often we are not served with it right away. Sometimes the petitioner's attorneys, uh, some of it's, you know, they're just not very good at doing what they're doing and they don't mail us a copy. Sometimes it's gamemanship. They purposely don't mail us a copy. Uh, but what happens is a motion gets filed. Sometimes 10, 12, 15 days in, we finally get notice of it. Right. And that's that clock's already started in terms of filing our answer. So we really need to handle these right away, which we do. Uh, it is our habit here. Uh, that we file an answer right away to these things, regardless of what that time is. If it's five days in, seven days in, we just file an answer right away to make sure we're not missing any kind of deadlines. Yeah, and before we move on, we're really talking about our practice because right. we are, we're paper filers. Uh, New Jersey does have an electronic filing system. We don't participate in that. I, I don't participate in it for strategic reasons. I like forcing my adversaries uh, to prove that they've served something on both right. me and the carrier. So there's a little bit of strategy involved with that decision on our behalf. Uh, but there's also a separate, for those uh, firms that are electronic filers, they, it's deemed filed as soon as it's served and, and part of the uh, worker compensation division record. So just to be careful, we are talking about paper filing. Uh, that's, that's what we do here. Right. But, yeah. right. And again, you know, communication is important here between the client and the attorney. Uh, sometimes we will get mailed the copy. We tell our, our risk professionals right away, hey, we got a copy. Uh, here's what's going on. There is a mid-temp motion filed. We're going to answer it. And other times they are filed with it, and they have to, you know, hopefully communicate with us right away that they have this. So anyway, we have the 21 days to answer. Um, uh, now, if that motion is filed and there's already been a, a claim petition filed previous, then that 21-day time period is, is what governs. If, however, which sometimes comes up, a mid-temp motion is filed with the claim petition simultaneous, 
So often uh, times the petitioner will come in, tell his attorney, I need treatment. This is, you know, sort of an emergency. There is no CP filed, and the attorney will prepare both documents and file them right away. If that's the case, we actually have 30 days to answer uh, those those uh, med-temp motions and those type situations. Uh, regardless, we are provided to, we, we are required to get an IME within 30 days of the filing. Right. That's hard to meet. Sometimes. Very difficult. Yeah. Uh, a lot of doctors, you know, they'll say they have appointments three months out, you know, so even from the date we call them, it's 90 days, maybe 60 days later, they won't be able to give us an appointment. So uh, we happen to have a good relationship with a lot of the doctors we refer cases to where uh, when one of these med temp motions come in, we can call them up and say, look, doc, it's a med temp motion. Kind of need a really, you know, quick appointment. They'll, they'll do some cancellation and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll squeeze us in, you know, as much as they can. And it's definitely a challenge. And, it, you know, this is one of those areas where, you know, we're talking about motions for med intent and how to defend them and what we have to do mechanically. Uh, we're not really talking today about how to avoid them. But, I mean, one of the great things to talk about is, you know, when we think there might be a motion being filed or coming down the pike, this is a petitioner who's been very adamant, wants more and more and more and more treatment, right. et cetera, uh, and we think that uh, there's maybe they're, they're going to challenge the need for more care. Maybe we're getting a protective IME. Maybe we're suggesting, hey, let's get that opinion sooner rather than wait for them to file the motion. Right. That's the kind of um, sort of uh, counseling that we're not going to really talk about today because we're really talking about reacting today to motions for med intent. Uh, but it is a huge challenge for us to try to get those IMEs done quickly and timely. Yeah, Practically absolutely. speaking, most of the time we go to that first conference for a motion for med intent, which, you know, under the regulation has to be listed within 30 days. Uh, most of the time we don't have an IME in our hands. Most of the time we don't have that perfect contradictory medical opinion that we're hoping for. Right. Um, so, you know, most of the time the judges accommodate them and understand hey, uh, it's really hard to get this IME done in this time. They like to know that it's scheduled at least, that it's at least on uh, right. you know, plan. So that's important for us as your defenders to, to be able to go in there and tell the judge, hey, judge, we don't have this here today, you know, right now, uh, but look, it's scheduled for 13 days from now, 15 days or 20 days from now. That's sort of understood. Right, and you're right, Greg. That's usually, that, that first conference is usually sort of resolved that way with the judge saying, all right, we'll come back one more time. You'll have your report at that time. Okay, so, and again, the, uh, the, the rules provide that the report itself has got to be provided within 35 days. As we just discussed, that's often difficult to meet, but we do the, the best we can to try and meet those guidelines. Um, once the report's received, uh, and, you know, there's usually a conference to try and resolve these matters, uh, oftentimes they are resolved at that point. Uh, we, we certainly try and get the motions abandoned or dismissed uh, or maybe in order with some minimal, uh, you know, treatment granted, um, and usually that ends things at that point. However, they can often go to trial if they're not resolved. If that's the case, uh, the judges have to list it for trial. For med-temp motions, uh, non-emergent med-temp motions, those trials will occur uh, on a regular cycle um, review. So the petitioner might start to testify and then finish that testimony in one, one, one session, uh, and then the next cycle, the next three-week time period or sometimes six-week time period is maybe when the doctor's reported to testify. So it does not have to be, like we'll talk about emergence in a second, continuous where it's a straight Monday through Thursday or Friday or something kind of trial. Um, okay, emergent motions. These are rare. They're, Super rare. Yeah, they're not often filed. You basically need to have irreparable harm that's going to occur to the petitioner. He's going to die without a certain surgery or he's getting an amputation of a limb or something like that unless some immediate uh, event takes place, uh, treatment or a diagnostic test or something like that. They are rare. They are on a much stricter timeline in terms of answering them and and, uh, and following up. 
So once these emergent motions are filed, we only have five days to file that answer. So if, again, sort of back to the point of if anybody sees a mid-temp motion, tell your attorneys right away. We'll determine right away if it's a standard or an emergent and know the appropriate guidelines and timelines to follow. And those emergent motions say emergent all over them. Right, yeah. Uh, but, again, they're, they're the situation where we definitely want to react as quickly as we possibly can. Um, my experience has been that since they changed the law to allow for emergent motions, which is really only seven or eight years now, it's been exceedingly rare. I mean, we've only defended a few a year in all of that time. Yeah. Um, it, the, the division is reporting very, very few numbers of these being filed. And, and the fact of the matter is, there's really, really justification for these types of motions. The uh, petitioner really has to show that they are literally going to die absent this care or really uh, suffer some extreme harm. It's very difficult, and most of the motions that are filed as emergent get transformed back into a standard motion for many. Right. So once, right. Once the judge realizes they're not of an emergent nature, they are converted into a regular. Exactly. Uh, these have to be heard. Again, we have to file answers within five days. The judge will have to have a conference within 10 days of the filing date. Right. Uh, a lot of times the judges do request that they be phone conferences, right. uh, which is fine if you're the petitioner's attorney, you want to attend by phone conference, we, we attend them in person. Right. I think it's you get a big benefit out of being there in person and making these arguments in person. So we will avoid the phone conferences as often as possible. Um, and then, of course, you, know, you, you can get an IME for these. Uh, if one's to be obtained, it's got to be within 15 days of the motion filing. Almost impossible. Almost impossible to do. So usually these, these are immediately dealt with in the context of are they emergent or not, and I think we find most of them, the few that we've seen, uh, fail that test, and they, they can convert it into regular mid-term motions. So um, that's basically your two types of motions. Uh, that Now, going forward, how do we defend these? What kind of ways do we sort of uh, present our side of things to the judge to get these dismissed? Michael, you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, the first thing that we do to defend motions is we use the rules. We force the petitioner's attorneys to comply with the rules as stated. Additionally, we file an answer in every claim. Regardless, even in scenarios where we think we may ultimately provide the treatment, we like to file an answer anyway to kind of force the petitioner's hand and to also clarify the case later on. For, uh, for example, it makes it a little bit easier and a little bit cleaner for the designation of fees, something that we'll talk a little bit later about in the video. And additionally, we present our own proofs. We often obtain medical records or IME reports. The earlier we get them, the better. And we use these items to essentially counteract what's been said by the petitioner's attorney so far. Uh, using the rules and the law, the first two are statutory. In workers' compensation, typically you see things being handled under statutory framework. However, in scenarios where statutory framework doesn't quite go as far, we'll go and refer to case law. Often at times, we'll file, in, uh, in regards to our answering statement, we'll file a brief, which we outline a lot of the case law. Right, and I think the goal here, Michael, is to, to the, I mean, these judges have a lot of cases. They've got a lot going across their desk. And when they get these med temp motions, our opposition is to give them as much information as possible all in that one document so that they can make the decision on these motions, which is why we sort of summarize the case law. We sort of put the statutory and the uh, case law legal arguments uh, forth. Right before yeah, Right before the the judges so they can they have it all right there to make the decision. Absolutely. So here, some of the things that we see is that when the petitioner requests treatment on a motion for mentem, it's got to be treatment that at one time was, say, denied or refused by the carrier. It can't be treatment that they went out and the doctor said, you can have this, then it just never followed through. And there's some of the case law that we actually refer to. So I'd like to read verbatim for one second off the case of the University of Massachusetts versus Chris Dulo. 
the petitioner must first request the treatment, diagnostic test, or referral to a specialist from the respondent and be denied or refused. It's, uh, it's our experience that many of the motions that are filed involve times where the petitioner has yet to be refused. So in these scenarios, we like to go into court and we always make the argument that the petitioner here, you know, he was recommended for the treatment, but at no point was he refused thereafter. Right. And often that's the way in which they may, we can maybe say quash the motion prior to its going forward beyond the first hearing. Just per se defective motion. Correct. Yeah. And you see a situation, uh, we've had this often, where uh, sometimes the, the request for treatment is not made yet. The doctor's office hasn't transcribed the notes. They haven't sent the request to the insurance company saying, you know, please schedule the MRI or whatever, whatever it is that's being requested. And therefore, that, again, like you said, that's our first sort of defense is, Judge, it has to be requested and then denied. It wasn't even requested yet. And we, we've been successful with motions in, in defending them that way. So, All right, so responding to the motion itself, Michael. So what do we send? Paperwork. We've, we've seen the forms that come to us. So what do we send out to the court and as well as to the uh, petitioner's attorney? We send the answering statement, which is the, the answer in which essentially counteracts the notice that's propounded upon us. We send a certification of the counsel. There we write a narrative of what is occurring, the petitioner's history, the medical records, and within the certification, we address medical proofs. And right there, we highlight, we write a narrative to the judge that the petitioner's attorney will say why we believe the, uh, the treatment should be not denied. And we point to very specific items in the medical records right. to do so. It makes it a more persuasive for a practical setting. And in addition, we like to file briefs in opposition. So we go and we'll try and summarize some of the most uh, relevant case law, and we'll attach them and as they apply to, say, the medical records and the particular scenario. And we frame it all in a manner that's most advantageous for our position, given the facts of the case. Now, defending the motion. In the event that we can't, say, quash the motion or have the motion taken off or removed from the motion list, we'll then have to proceed to trial. And the, uh, the traditional or standard motion for med intent, as Joe and Greg had alluded to, the trials typically are non-continuous. So, for example, the petitioner will testify and then will come back maybe a cycle later, which will be three weeks, and then the respondent's fact witnesses right. testify, and then maybe another adjournment of, say, one or two cycles, and then the petitioner's medical witnesses will testify, and ultimately the respondent's medical witnesses. Um, something that's important to note here for the standard motion where there are non-continuous trials, after every presentation, typically there's a conference with the judge of compensation. In our opinion, a uh, vast majority of these motions that, that begin at trial end upon the conclusion of the petitioner's testifying. There are many tactics and, and lines of questioning that we propound upon the petitioner to try and get them, say, to slip up. Sometimes we'll ask the petitioner, you know, do you, if you got the surgery guaranteed, would you take it or would you have the surgery today? And sometimes the petitioners will say, ah, no, not really. I'm just looking for a second opinion. Well, that by default makes the motion improper then. Right. So oftentimes we can kind of trick the petitioner into saying something that he shouldn't or we can drill them with a serious well, I wouldn't line. use the word trick. Let's use the word aggressively cross-examine. <laughs> aggressively <laughs> cross-examine. Okay. So, and then we can, I guess, aggressively cross-examine the petitioner <laughs> during the opening day of trial. And then we could go back and try and see if uh, that would quash the motion. Yeah, and most most of the motions I've ever tried resolve literally, I mean, maybe 90% of them with the petitioner testifying. Yeah. And generally speaking, it's, does this person even want the care that they're seeking in the motion, or is this just simply an opportunity 
for an attorney to get a fee. Right. Uh, that number one thing. And the number two thing is sometimes it's valuable to put them on the stand and have them sort of recount. Well, I did physical therapy, and then I had this surgery, and then I did this, and then I did more physical therapy, and then I and nothing worked. Yeah. And it's valuable for the judge to sometimes hear that, hey, this is this is it. This is as good as it gets. You know, and maybe this person has reached maximum medical improvement. They're just not improving anymore. So, right. you know, it, generally speaking, they resolve at that first opportunity for testimony. Rarely <laughs> will they go through their fact. Us bringing in fact witnesses, generally a motion for mad attempt, doesn't happen, and rarely medical witnesses. Yeah. Um, and I kind of just jumped in here and talked about attorney's fees, uh, but that is what I believe is motivating a lot of these motions. Look, some of the motions are genuinely motivated. The petitioner is not getting care that maybe they need. Uh, maybe their curative treatment uh, options have not been exhausted. Right. We get that. Um, but really, uh, there's another component to this, which is attorney's fees. Yeah, correct. So some of the things that we'd like to highlight that are that, number one, attorney's fees are discretionary. Secondly, in the state of New Jersey, attorney's fees are capped at a 20% max by statute. However, there's no maximum amount of attorney's fees. So, for example, if the petitioner was to receive $5 million, 20% of that would be $1 million in attorney's fees. So even though they are capped at 20%, there's no statutory max to the amount of money. Um, lastly, we'd like to highlight the fact that ambiguous language often results in large awards. We always try and avoid it every step of the way, language along the lines of fees to abide. Something that we like to do uh, early on, for example, let's say the petitioner files a motion for med and temp where they're seeking a diagnostic test, an MRI, a CT scan of some sort. We'll go in and have a petition the judge to put that the, the fee should be set on the image opposed to the treatment that would result thereafter. Right. And we try and, and write very specifically as to what treatment the fee is being applied to. Right. The, I think we can uh, clarify here, too, that the petitioner's attorneys, I mean, their goal is to seek a 20% fee on basically all treatment and all temporary disability paid from the date that order was signed forward. So, you know, if, if as a result this petitioner winds up getting surgery and epidural injections and everything else when all they were seeking initially was an MRI test, uh, they're going to argue all of that's included, including the temp that was awarded as a result, whereas if we can sort of avoid this ambiguous language in the beginning and say, look, Judge, a test was grant, uh, requested and now you've granted it, let's set the fee just on that test amount. Like, it's not this overreaching, sure. you know, number that, that'll go on forever, basically. But again, you know, the, the focus for the petitioner's attorneys is fees. Part, some of them are, you know, I'll be a little altruistic. Some of them are, they're concerned about their clients uh, and, they're, and getting care, but a lot of this is fee-driven. Uh, and, and it's, you know, they, they fight tooth and nail to get those fees. So as best as we can limit them, as best as we can get specific language in that order, the better off it is certainly for the client. All right. Um, we're up to questions. So we have a second computer here, but uh, for some reason it doesn't seem to be uh, showing me any questions. I'm going to approach that other computer and see if we've got any questions on this one. Uh, we're going to have to switch screens for just a second. You may be looking at just me for a minute here. Sorry. And questions. Um, Okay, so Deborah asks a question. Uh, I've never received medical reports uh, with a claim petition. Why is that? Well, I can't explain that. Generally speaking, claim petitions are not really accompanied by medical reports. A claim petition, particularly in a denied case or where the claim petition 
would be your first notice of the loss or the accident, um, that claim petition uh, generally would not be accompanied by any medical record. No. You know. Well, there, there is a section that you can list medical the, treatment and provide it so far sure. where they list the doctors and stuff. Yeah, so if, that's, that's, that's actually not done very often either. Uh, if you have a petitioner's attorney who's on the ball and he knows what he's doing, he will list all the different treatment that, that the names of the providers basically up to that point. But uh, you're right, very rarely do you see any medical records attached to the claim petition. Okay, uh, looks like we have another question. Uh, okay, why can the plaintiff attorney adjourn the listing numerous times in order to get their IME done? This is from Deborah. I find that at each listing, the petitioner attorney keeps asking for adjournment at the listing to get the IME done. Um, why are they not held to? Why are they not being held to the fire uh, to get their IME uh, complete and scheduled? Okay, great question. <laughs> uh, this is like probably what one of the most common annoyances that every client we hear from everybody yes. that New Jersey seems to adjourn cases at the drop of a hat. I mean, fair to say. Um, right. So let's talk a little bit about our our the way we handle that, or the case constantly being getting adjourned for party to get IME and. Maybe you guys would speak to that. Yeah, well, uh, and it should be, I think, discussed differently for med-temp motions versus just regular sure. uh, permanency or something. In a med-temp motion, the judges generally will stay on top of that. They will not allow too much nonsense to go on in terms of adjournments. Pretty much no adjournments. And, and actually, if the petitioner doesn't have his IME already attached to the motion, it's probably right. going to be rejected as defective. Yep. But in discussing it in general, uh, treatment's done, we're getting permanency exams, uh, and there's just endless adjournments. Uh, you know, we, we have a number of different tools we can use on our behalf. Uh, we can ask judges to mark a case as a pretrial no adjournment if we see that there's been a number of non-appearances by an attorney, a sort of no, no call, no show type of thing. Um, we can also file motions to dismiss for lack of prosecution. Right. And, but, and just to talk about what Deborah's specifically talking about, which is cases constantly getting adjourned, they claim they're getting an IMA. So one, one of the things we do is we call them up and say, When's the date of your IME? Right, yeah. Right? Try and get specifics out of it. Because, you know, it's such a common excuse. I'm getting an IME. Well, really, when are you getting this IME? No right. one's seen this thing. Uh, so we really, that's something that I think you should be expecting your attorneys to sort of push around your adversaries yeah. on, Deborah. And that is to say, hey, when, when is it happening? And then diary it. And then, like, two weeks after it's been done, call right. and say, hey, did your guy actually even go or your lady actually go to the IME? Because if they didn't, I'm filing another motion to dismiss yeah. for lack of prosecution. That could show up to their own IME. I actually just last week annoyed someone enough that they, the, the paralegal in the office called the attorney on vacation. <laughs> and actually said, I got this attorney. He keeps calling me. Let's give him the date. Like, so he scheduled it. You know, I, I apologize to him for bothering him on vacation, but uh, I had known that. But it's just you have to keep at it. We, you know, we diary. I diary myself all the time. I have the paralegal diary as well. And there's just continuous follow-up calls to make sure we get that date. Uh, we then notify the client at least there's a date scheduled, and then of course, soon you know a couple weeks after that exam date takes place, let's get the report and start with those sort of bothersome phone calls again. Uh, right. it, it basically, just on our part, it's a lot of bombardment of emails and phone calls to get yep. that done. Yep, and, and a great question because it's one we hear all the time. Yeah. All right, again, I gotta walk up here because. Uh, yeah, the visual of that grade is awesome. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Well, look, we have this other computer right over here that should be doing is what it's not for whatever reason today. So I've got to come up close so everyone gets to see my nose right up to the camera. Uh, Laura asked a question. We've been seeing motions filed with an examination by a permanency doctor 
or a doctor who is not of the proper specialty. For example, and they give us the name of the physician, we're all familiar with Dr. Terry Skolnick, uh, do the courts allow this? So this question, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit, is this. Uh, if you need to get treatment uh, performed by a specialist, you're seeking treatment by a specialist, do you need a, uh, a referral from a specialist? The answer to that is generally no. However, uh, there is case law, uh, and the, uh, it's a, a case called Amadeo versus UPS, where the, where the uh, claimant is just simply, or the petitioner or the movement, is just simply saying, uh, I, I don't know what to do for this person. Let's get them a whole bunch of tests. And, we'll, we'll, you know, if we send you to enough specialties, we'll find some physician <laughs> who will want to do something to you, right? So, you know, we'll find a sawbones who wants to do something. And the answer is I would challenge that um, because it's not curative. It's just speculative. We're really, we're searching for a diagnosis. Uh, and I would caution you about that. I've also seen that some of the petitioner's IME physicians uh, suddenly, and, and it goes through spates, where all of a sudden everybody who comes to them for a permanency evaluation, and they clearly went to that doctor for a permanency evaluation, now needs a bunch more tests. And, you know, so that's something that uh, we deal with as well. Uh, and we have seen that. But I think those need to be aggressively defended. Yeah. Particularly if the petitioner has been treating with a physician of that specialty, has been released from care. Now their doctor, I'm sorry, their attorney sends them to an IME doctor for a second opinion or to get a permanency evaluation done. Uh, all of a sudden, now they need more tests. Uh, that's beyond that sort of general practitioner specialty. Again, I would be disputing those or challenging those uh, as much as I could. Um, and I also think that the judges in general are understand uh, the qualifications or the relative qualifications of. IMA physicians, the sort of shop-worn petitioners, uh, uh, attorney-selected physicians that they send every right. petitioner to, and actual treating physicians. Um, the case law is that the uh, judge of compensation is to give weight and deference to the treating physician, uh, not to the IME physician. The judge is supposed to consider things like how many times have they been seen by this physician, what's the physician's specialty, et cetera. And uh, the judge should be giving more weight to that treating or specialist physician. All right, let me walk up one more time. Again, you'll be seeing my nose again. And that's our last question, so you'll be spared from that again. Uh, wait, wait for it. Okay. That concludes our webinar today. Today's topic was motions for men in temp. Thank you for uh, coming. Next month, we will be talking about defending occupational claims, and that's going to be repetitive occupational orthopedic injuries and also the more common hearing loss and, of course, like occupational respiratory claims, inhalation injuries, et cetera. So uh, Joe Jones and Michael Gervalino will be presenting that. Uh, I will actually be on the road next month, so good luck, you guys. will be on your own. Um, if you have any further questions, please feel free to email us. Uh, the email uh, and all of our contact information is in the handouts. Uh, thank you for attending uh, this webinar. Thanks. Take care, everybody. See you next month.